0: Hello, everyone, and once again, welcome back to the Junker George Show. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and today we're going to be talking about lying. We're going to start off talking about lying in general, and then towards the end, we're going to start talking about uh, the extreme cases, the uh, Nazi at the door cases, if you will. And if you don't understand that, don't worry, we'll get into it later. So I want to make one thing very clear. When we're talking about ethics and morality, There can be a lot of gray area, and personally, that drives me crazy because I'm very black and white. This is either wrong or right. It's either acceptable or it's not. I'm very uh, black and white, lying in the sand, this is my hill I'm going to die on type of person. That's just who I am. Sometimes I can come across as harsh, and that's something I'm working on personally. But this idea that there's sometimes some gray area, it drives me crazy. But uh, it's just a reality, and it's one that I have deal with, and that we all have to deal with. So I'm just going to give you guys a heads up. If you don't like gray areas, sorry, we're going to have to get into that. Because this is a gray area, especially at the end, uh, lying in extreme cases. So, yeah, gray area. We're just going to have to watch out for that. So all of that said, let's get into lying in our discussion on lying, I think the first thing that we have to do is define our terms. Because if we fail to define our terms now, we're actually going to have kind of a harder conversation at the end, and really all throughout. So let's define lying. Wayne Grudem, I think, is very helpful when it comes to this. In his book, Christian Ethics, he defines lying this way, affirming in speech or writing something you believe to be false. How Wayne Grudem defines lying, and I think that's a great way to define it. Now, obviously, the inverse is also true as well that um, denying something in speech or writing which you believe to be true that is, I believe, a form of lying. And I think obviously Grudem implied that when he was writing, but just didn't explicitly say it. So, I think that's a good definition. It's obviously a very narrow definition, but Lots and lots of church fathers, and really pillars of the faith, uh, held to this narrow definition of lying. So now that we've defined lying, I kind of want to get into one other thing that doesn't really fit into this definition, but it is an example of lying. That's uh, nodding, nodding, shaking your head, shrugging. These are all examples of lying that don't really fit into this definition necessarily, But they are examples of lying, and why? Because they're meant to communicate something. For example, shaking your head back and forth is meant to say no. So if someone asks you, hey, do you know where I put my car keys? And you took the car keys, but you shake your head. You're saying no. You just haven't used any words to do it. So that is an example of a lie but it doesn't really fit into this narrow definition, so it is still a lie. I want to make that very clear. Yes, it is a lie, but it doesn't exactly fit into this narrow definition. So then, what is lying not? I want to look at what lying isn't. What is not a part of this definition? What doesn't fit into this definition? And I want to make something very clear here. Many of these Are, I don't believe, should be used on a day to day basis. Many of them are ways that can be intentionally or unintentionally misleading, and I don't think we should be using them on a day to day basis. I think the New Testament is very clear in saying that we should be people of the truth, we should be people who love truth, because God is truth. So these things should be used sparingly and in extreme cases, which Let's be honest with ourselves. Most of us probably won't get into. So if you use the, if you use what I'm about to say as an excuse to habitually deceive your neighbor, your brother, uh, anyone, then that's not my decision. Definitely one I would not advise, but these are things that do not necessarily fall into the category of telling an outright lie. Again, This does not necessarily mean they're right in everyday situations. It just means they're not necessarily a lie. So the first thing that I want to look at is silence. Someone asks you a question and you're silent. You don't say anything. Now, of course, I can think of very few uh, cases where this would be necessary even. And I can think of even fewer where these would be Acceptable or encouragable or commendable. I don't even know if encouragable is a word. I don't know. If it's not, you heard it here first. So, silence. And for that, I want to look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. And this is during the trials of Jesus. He is. uh, The Jews have brought him to the courts to try him for blasphemy, various other Alleged crimes. Verse 63 But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then later in the next verses, Jesus goes on to say, basically, you have said so. And he doesn't exactly answer the question, he remains silent on it. Now, one of the fundamental cornerstones of the Christian faith is that we believe Jesus was perfect. He was truly man, truly God, and he was perfect, never once committed a crime, never once sinned against God. So, with that said, I think we can take just just these first four words, but Jesus remained silent. I think we can take these as indicative that silence is not a lie. Now, does this mean it should be done in everyday situations? Does this mean you should just ignore someone when they ask you a question? I would answer no, absolutely not. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we're to be living these things out in our lives, we can't just ignore someone, and we can't be intentionally deceptive when it's not completely necessary in this way. Of course, as I said, this isn't a lie, and one could argue that it's not necessarily really deceptive either, but... Either way, we should make an effort to be polite. We should make an effort to be kind. We should make an effort to be courteous, gentle. These are things that you can't really do if you refuse to answer a question in everyday life. It just I think that should be common sense for most people. So this isn't to say that we should always be silent, that it's always acceptable necessarily to be silent in cases where we're being asked questions. But in Jesus' case, in this specific instance, it was acceptable. Now, maybe you live in a country where it is illegal to be a Christian and they drag you before the courts and they are hurling accusations at you. Yeah, stay silent. That's not a lie in that situation. There's no lie in staying silent in that situation. So Jesus remained silent. So that's the first thing. Silence is not necessarily a lie. Again, not encourageable. I said it again. I don't even know if it's a word. Someone is going to have to look that up and somehow let me know. But if that's a word, great. If not, you heard it here first. So silence, again, not necessarily something that should be encouraged in all situations. But it's not a lie either. So then the other thing is nonverbal actions. Now, this is one that we have to be very, very careful about because this can easily be abused and used to deceive our neighbor. So an example of this might be, uh, I leave the house and I leave a light on to deter burglars. That's not a lie, because it was an action. and An action can neither be true or false, it simply is. A tree growing outside is not true or false. It simply is. Now if I were to say there's a tree growing outside, that statement is either true or false, but the fact that a tree is growing outside is neither true or false. It simply is. Grass growing is neither true or false. A baby being born is neither true or false picture hanging on a wall is neither true or false. It simply is. This is simply just there. It is happening. Me opening a door. That's not a statement of something that's either true or false. That's simply just an action, and an action isn't true or false. Now again, this can be very easily abused, and if this is taken to mean that well, I can deceive my neighbor as long as I don't do it with my words. First of all, that's reprehensible. Second of all, no. It's a very slippery slope, and I would not do that. First of all, reprehensible. You, at that point, are not living for the truth. You are not trying to pursue holiness. You're not trying to pursue righteousness. You're not loving your neighbor as you should, you're not valuing him as he should be valued. You're not giving him the respect that he is due. If you're intentionally living by this code of, as I, by this code of I can deceive my neighbor as long as I don't do it with my words, I do it with my actions, that is wrong. That is wrong. Now, slippery slope, it really is, because as soon as you get into that, you go down, you go down, and it just tumbles and tumbles, and it's like a snowball. It starts out really small, but then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's a slippery slope at the point where you are deceiving your neighbor, and then it's like, oh, I'm going to get caught if I don't say something. Oh, I better just say it. I, I better just tell a lie. It really is just a slippery slope. It's first of all, reprehensible, and second of all, a slippery slope. So nonverbal actions. Again, not necessarily to be encouraged in everyday life, but not necessarily a lie either. Honestly, I think they're in that gray area. It's hard to make a consistent argument either way, because it does seem to be this gray area, like I said. So, nonverbal actions. Again, not necessarily to be encouraged in everyday life, but not necessarily a lie either, especially under this uh, relatively narrow definition of lying. So then, what else is lying not? Ironic statements. Honestly, this is probably one of my favorite forms of humor. And my siblings and I do it a lot. We'll walk in the room and if it's obvious what the other person is doing and the question is asked anyway, hey, what are you doing? Nine times out of 10, the response is probably going to be something along the lines of, oh, brushing my teeth. Or, oh, I'm skydiving. Just because it's an ironic statement. It's like, it's obvious what I'm doing. You know what I'm doing. Come on. You walked right into that. Now, this does not fall under the definition of lying because it is not to be, it's not intended to deceive the other person in any way. And taken properly, understood properly, it's not going to deceive the other person. And again, if just taken properly, it's understood. This is not meant to be deceptive. It's not meant to be taken in a deceptive way. It's not meant to harm you in this. It's... It's an ironic statement. It's not meant to be deceptive in any way, shape, or form. So I don't believe that this falls under lying, necessarily. The other thing, and this will actually, uh, this this one can actually be debated. I know, I think Paul Washer would probably uh, disagree on this, but he would, uh, I would say hyperbole. So saying something like, that was one of the biggest fish I've ever caught is simply an exaggeration. And sometimes they can hyperbolic statements can be used in a good way to illustrate a point. Jesus used hyperbolic statements um, when he said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a hyperbolic statement if I've ever heard one. And people like to argue that, well, the eye of a needle really is referring to I think it's like the entryway to a city. The camel had to get on its knees and crawl through. But I don't think that's true whatsoever. I think Jesus is using a hyperbolic statement to illustrate a point. And again, a camel going through the eye of a needle is a pretty hyperbolic statement if I've ever heard one. So I think that hyperbolic statements have their place. And no, they are not lying per se. Now, if you were to say, that was the biggest fish I've ever caught when it was four inches long. I mean, if you've really never caught a fish over four inches, I mean, Hey, but I think anyone who's ever been seriously fishing has caught a fish over four inches. So if you're going to say that that was the biggest fish I've ever caught, it was four inches long. That's probably an example of, Uh, an outright lie. Um, But overall, I think for the most part, just hyperbolic statements are fairly acceptable. So then, unintentional falsehoods, and that's one thing that I like about uh, Grudem's definition of lying. Again, it's affirming in speech or writing something you believe to be false. And again, obviously the inverse something you believe to be false. It's not a lie if I genuinely believe something and I affirm that belief to someone with my speech or with my writing. That's not a lie. Because I genuinely believe it. I believe that I am telling the truth. So, this doesn't fall under the category of lying. It's just simply... Incorrect. It's unintentional. It was an accident. It's not. The deception is not there. I'm not intentionally trying to deceive someone. I'm simply reiterating what I believe to be true. And so if I were to say, well, no, unintentional falsehoods are indeed a lie, I would be afraid to say anything, ever, because I'd be terrified that I'm lying without knowing it. I. I don't think many of us would talk if we believed that could be considered a lie. So that's one unintentional falsehoods. And then again, this is another example of one that should not be encouraged in day to day life, but it's not necessarily lying either avoiding direct answers or responses. I don't believe that avoiding direct answers necessarily falls under This idea of lying. Now, again, we have to be very, very careful here. This can easily be abused and taken as an excuse to live a life of deception. That is not what I'm trying to get at here. All I'm saying is that this does not necessarily fall under the direct heading of lying. Should it be encouraged in day-to-day life? Absolutely not. Again, we are to be pursuing the truth. We're to be striving for it. We're to be trying to move closer to God, growing in holiness, loving the truth. But this idea of avoiding direct answers or responses, it's not necessarily a lie, but I wouldn't encourage it in most situations either. Now, I recognize that this is probably one that most people are going to say, I don't know about that. Your your ears are probably perking up a little bit right now. And as they well should be, your filters are probably starting to kick in like, hold on, this doesn't sound right. So I just want to point to uh, one passage of scripture real quick. First Samuel chapter 16, verses two through five. Ah uh, Samuel, the Lord has just commanded Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the new king over Israel. So Samuel's response is uh, in verse two. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? Now, I just to pause real quick, the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling. I love that. Samuel's a man of God, and they know if Samuel is coming to them, it's something big is happening. Something big is about to go down, and rightfully, they're probably a little nervous, and as it says, they came to meet him, trembling. Samuel is a man of God, but I just find it funny that one man comes into the city and suddenly the elders get nervous. I think that's uh, funny. So, sorry about that. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So, Here, the Lord has said, you are to take a sacrifice, you are to take a heifer. And if anyone asks you what you are doing, you are to say, I've come to sacrifice this heifer to the Lord. Yeah, it's true, but it's not exactly the main reason that Samuel is there. So I guess we could almost better uh, label this section as concealing some of the truth. Samuel here has been told by God to tell part of the truth, never to lie. Samuel is not lying here. He did go to Bethlehem. He did offer a burnt offering. He did offer the heifer as a burnt offering. This is not a lie in any way. Samuel just hasn't necessarily told the whole truth. This isn't a half-truth either, because a half-truth would be telling part of the truth and telling a little bit of a lie. He's simply concealing some information that it would not be good if if that information got into the wrong hands. And again, we see that the Lord commands him. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. It's true, Samuel did go to sacrifice to the Lord. 100% true. It's just not 100% of the truth. It itself is a 100% true statement. It's just not 100% of the truth. And again, this is an extreme situation. This isn't, I can't stress this enough. This is a situation where Samuel would die if this information got into the wrong hands. We all know how crazy Saul was at this point. Samuel would die If this information got into the wrong hands. So the Lord tells him, don't lie. The Lord sticks with this commandment of thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Do not lie. But take a heifer and sacrifice it to me. And if anyone asks you, say you have come to make that sacrifice. Again, not a lie. But I would not necessarily encourage this in everyday situations, because again, we're to be growing in holiness, we're to be striving for the truth, we're to be people who love the truth. So this is not exactly an option for an everyday situation. It becomes deceptive, and it becomes abused, and it's a stumbling block for us and for our neighbors. This is not something that I would necessarily recommend in an everyday situation. However, it is acceptable in situations where maybe there's a life on the line. It is acceptable to conceal part of the truth. Our president does this all of the time. And I'm not necessarily talking about strictly Donald Trump. I'm talking about presidents throughout history do this all the time. There's just some things that it would not behoove the American people to know secret military operations, peace treaty negotiations, all sorts of things, It just simply would not behoove the American population nor America as a nation to know these things. And so thus, rightly, the president keeps them from us. Again, rightly. So, not necessarily something that I would encourage in our everyday situations. And I think the vast majority of us probably won't get to a situation in which we need to use this, but it's not necessarily a lie. And we see even the Lord has commanded its use at one point in time, avoiding direct answers, or again, I think this could probably be better labeled as concealing a portion of the truth. So what is lying not? Silence, nonverbal actions, Ironic statements, hyperbole, unintentional falsehoods, and avoiding direct answers. Again, concealing a part of the truth. Why on earth would lying be such a horrible deed? Why, why on earth would it be forbidden? Well, first of all, because God is truth. God is truth. And because God is truth, we need to be striving after him. We need to be growing, be molding ourselves into his image. We need to be pushing ourselves. We need to be striving. As Paul says, we need to be running the race with endurance. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. And I love that illustration. I love that illustration. No, it's not just because I like watching the fights, but I just love that illustration because when you think of people who fight professionally, you, Think of them training hard all day, and they're working, they're pushing their bodies to the limits, they're striving after this, they're trying to train themselves as best as they know how, and then they finally get in the ring, and they fight with all their hearts, and they fight with all their strength, and they're just so focused on this. They're not boxing as one beating the air. They're in this fight to win, and they're fighting as hard as they can to win this. Paul says, I'm not boxing as one beating the air. We are to be striving, training ourselves. We are to be running this race with endurance, not boxing as one who beats the air. These These are the pictures that are used of the Christian growing in holiness. This is how we are supposed to be. This is how hard we are to be striving for holiness. And I will freely admit that I fall short of this every single day. But take this picture of a Boxer boxing as if he is fighting a true opponent and he is struggling to win, as a runner who is running this race to win this crown. Take that and apply it to our energy pursuing after truth. That's how we are supposed to pursue after truth because God is truth and we need to be conforming ourselves to the image of God. We're told, I believe it's in Philippians. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are to be striving after God. We are to be working for that, training for it. We are to be boxing with all of our might. We are to be running this race Mm -hmm. with endurance. These are the pictures that we should have in the back of our mind when we think of pursuing truth. Because this is how we're supposed to pursue truth, with all of our energy, with all of our strength with all of our might. Because if we're not dedicating all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to this race, to this boxing match that we're in, then we're not properly loving God. Because we are told that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if We are not striving to become more like God, to honor him and glorify him in our our actions, that we're not loving him in the way that we should be because we're not dedicating our heart, soul, mind, and strength to him. He's an afterthought. He becomes an afterthought, something that can be discarded, something that can be put away when we get to a certain area of our lives. No, we need to be pursuing after holiness and righteousness. We need to be pursuing after the truth, training for it. Striving after it as one who races, as a boxer who fights a true enemy, not beating the air. So take this idea of a boxer in a boxing match or a runner in a race and apply it to us striving after holiness and striving after truth. Because that is what we are to be. So why is lying so heinous. Why is it such a heinous sin? Well, not only does it go directly against the character of God, but it also corrupts man. Not only does it corrupt man, but it is the product of a corrupt man. So it's this horrible circle. You Tell a lie, and it corrupts you. I think when you tell a lie, you can almost feel it corrupting you. I know I can. I can almost feel it corrupting me. And then as you become more corrupt, you tell more lies. So I want to read out of Mark chapter 7, verses 23-23. And he said, that is Jesus, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Lying is the product of a corrupt man, and it serves to further corrupt man. And not just the man who utters the lie, but all who are harmed by this lie. All who hear this lie... No, it's a lie, but don't say anything. So not only is lying a product of a corrupt man, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, from within, from out of the heart of a man, comes deceit. But it goes also to further corrupt man. So lying is this horrible circle. It proceeds from the heart and from inside a corrupt man, and it serves to further corrupt him or her it proceeds from the heart of a corrupt man and it serves to further bolster that corruption now really quick take a look at the company that lying takes keeps in these verses in Matthew 7 we tend to look at lying as kind of eh, the one the one that we put off to the side it's not that bad it's not as bad as some sins, and certainly that's true. But lying itself, we tend to look at it like, Meh, it's not all that bad. But look at where it's listed in Mark chapter 7. Look at what Jesus lists it with. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is the company that deceit keeps. And we can look at just how bad deceit is by looking at the things it's listed with. Again, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. This is the company that deceit keeps. And that should give us a clue, that should give us a hint as to how much God truly detests it. And on that note, Proverbs 12, verse 22, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Now, hold on a second. There's this whole modern evangelical movement that, well, God is love and he, hate, he hates the sin and loves the sinner. What does Proverbs 12, 22 tell us? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Not the lie that proceeds from those lips, but the lips themselves. And this is an example of one body part being used to represent the whole human. Proverbs certainly isn't telling us that God hates lips, specifically the lips that lie. Proverbs 12.22 is telling us that the man who lies is an abomination to the Lord. Lying is an abomination to the Lord. Look at the contrast. But those who act faithfully are his delight. You can see it again in this contrast. And again, this is one of the verses I love because lying in the sand, black and white here. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But there's that contrast. Those who act faithfully are his delight. Two people are being compared here. The liar, the one who practices deceit, and the faithful servant, the one who strives after truth, the two are being held in stark contrast to each other. And it's said that one is an abomination to the Lord. God despises him. The other is his delight. Two men are being compared here. We can't miss that, otherwise we miss the point of this passage. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. The man who lies is an abomination to the Lord. But the man who acts faithfully, the man who pursues truth and holiness and justice, is the Lord's delight. So then what else does lying do? What are the effects of lying? One other thing I want to note is just it simply ruins reputation. How many of us can point to the person who Habitually lies or slanders, and say, I don't trust that person. Their reputation has been ruined. They're not a trustworthy person. And rightly so, their reputation should be ruined. They brought it on themselves. Habitually lying and slander, gossip, all of these things go hand in hand. Because let's be honest, it's hard to gossip without slandering, and it's hard to slander without lying. So, These things ruin a reputation, as they well should. Your reputation should be ruined if you are a habitual liar. But they also ruin the reputation of the one being lied about. If someone goes out and lies about me, my reputation has now been ruined to anyone who hears that lie and believes it. My reputation's been ruined, and... Let's be honest with ourselves. For the vast majority of people, an accusation is pretty much as good as a condemnation. To accuse someone of something is basically as good as condemning them as guilty. Let's just be frank here. That's the way it goes. So lying ruins a reputation. I believe this is one of the reasons that it's such a heinous crime. So let's turn from this and let's look at the actual command itself found in Exodus chapter 20. This command of thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So Exodus, again, chapter 20. And I actually, there's a fun way to remember that. My pastor pointed out to me, uh, There's ten commandments, and they're found in the second book of the Bible. If you multiply ten, the number of commandments, by two, second book of the Bible, you get twenty. And the ten commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. Ten times two equals twenty. Ten commandments, second book, chapter 20. So, fun way to remember that. It's actually the only reason I remember (laughs) that. So, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. ESV, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's actually look at this command and break apart some of the maybe parts of it that can be misconstrued. So again, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, the idea is a courtroom setting, and this is something that many theologians agree. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air or working off of my own insight. This is something that many theologians know. This is this is a picture of a courtroom. And in this courtroom, you falsely testify against your neighbor. So I think one misconception, I think one area in which this is able to be misconstrued as well is, does this only apply to courtroom settings? The answer to that is no. I think John Calvin has a great way of understanding the Ten Commandments. Basically, what he says is that they are particular examples of overall crimes. They're particularly heinous examples of overall crimes. And so in this instance, this would be seen as a horrible crime because you're in a courtroom and you're sentencing a man to legal punishment, maybe in some cases execution, falsely. You're falsely accusing him of these things, and he could be killed for it. Personally, I think that's just as good as murdering him yourself. John Calvin, when speaking about this commandment, would say that this is a particularly heinous example of an overall crime. Lying and accusing someone falsely in the courtroom is an example of lying in general. We shouldn't be lying to anyone in any situation. I think that's a great way of properly understanding this verse and the rest of the commandments. Because we see that they are commands. You shall not do this, or you shall do this. But then the inverse also becomes true. And let me just give an example. You shall not murder. And I I think I talked about this in one of the episodes on worship. And I think basically my point was that if all you do is not murder someone, you haven't done much. But if you're actively trying to preserve your neighbor's life, then you are properly following the sixth commandment. Because we have this commandment that says don't do this or do do this on your father and mother is a positive command. But then the inverse is also true. You should do your best to preserve life. I think that's how we should be properly viewing this command of not to bear false witness against our neighbor. So then the other thing that's misconstrued and John frame actually uh, holds this view. The idea is basically that it is okay to tell a lie if you're not lying to your neighbor, as long as it's your enemy. As long as it's not your neighbor or your brother in Christ that you're lying to, it's acceptable. That, I believe, is a poor way of understanding this commandment. And again, I would reference John Calvin. This is a particularly heinous example of an overall type of crime. This is a particularly heinous example of an overall type of crime. I think that's a proper way of understanding this verse. So, Those are just two ways that it could be misconstrued. And let's look at one other thing is if you're going to hold this last position that it's okay to lie as long as it's not to your neighbor, you have to ask the question, does the same apply to the 10th commandment, which is coveting? And that's in Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not, uh, excuse me or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Are you seriously going to tell me that it is okay to covet someone's wife as long as he's not my neighbor? No, of course not. No one would say that. But for some reason, some people like to make this exception when it comes to lying. And I don't think that it's an exception you can make. I think that is a wrong understanding of this command not to lie. Again, I agree with John Calvin. I think that he had a proper way of understanding this verse and that we should emulate him in that regard. Obviously, I I disagree with some things that he said. I don't agree with everything. But I think he was right on the vast majority of topics. And this is one example of it. I think he had a good way of understanding this command. And I am running out of time, so I am going to try and make this we're going to go through this quick. So here's where that gray area comes in. Is it okay to tell a lie to save a life? Here's where that, uh, again, just gray area comes in. Here's where all the questions come up. Now, I do want to stress something here. This is an in-house debate. If you say yes or no, either way, it's not going to affect your salvation. I think that's pretty clear for most of us, but I just want to throw it out there just in case. Very much an in-house debate. So with that said, let's get into kind of some of the different interpretations. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was under, and this really just applies to lying in general, not even necessarily lying in the event that a life needs to be saved, but he was under uh, the assumption or the impression that Lying was based on circumstances, and let me give an illustration that he gave that would kind of explain that a little more. If a, if a teacher has a class, and in this class there's a child whose father is drunk, and that teacher asks him, is your father a drunk? And the child says no, well then that lie is actually on the teacher. It's not on the child. The child is innocent, but the teacher is the one responsible. And his idea was basically that circumstances determine this. The teacher should have known this was A, an insensitive question. Agreed, this is an insensitive question. And B, this child would not know how to respond to this, how to operate in this situation where he's amongst his peers. And the illustration was specifically referring to a younger child, not exactly like a high schooler or someone old enough and mature enough to understand how to uh, respond in this situation, specifically to a younger child. So the child would not know how to respond to this and how to gather his or her bearings and understand this and give a proper answer. So the lie is on the teacher. So I kind of want to break down this illustration. The teacher is very much at fault here. Yes, I agree. The student is also very much at fault here. The teacher, knowing the answer full well, should not have asked the question, especially in front of the child's classmates. And again, this is just an illustration. It's just a story. Has no basis in reality. It's probably happened before, but if, unless I'm very much mistaken, Bonhoeffer was just using it as an illustration, Uh, no basis in reality necessarily. Uh, so the teacher should have known this is an insensitive question to ask. Yes. And you're putting this child in an uncomfortable situation. Yes. And this is a horrible question to ask in a horrible situation to put any young child in, to put anyone in really. I mean, come on, who asks someone in front of their peers? Is your father a drunk or is one of your loved ones a drunk? Now that's that just seems like common sense. So yes, the teacher is at fault here. She should not have asked the question in the first place. But it was the child who lied, not the teacher. It was the child who lied, not the teacher. So for creating this situation, the teacher is very much at fault here. But for actually speaking the lie, the child is at fault. I disagree with Bonhoeffer on that point. The child is at fault here, yes. The teacher is also at fault. But the teacher did not lie, the child did. R.C. Sproul is of the view that, was of the view, excuse me, that in the event where life needs to be saved, it is not a sin to tell a lie. So I respect that position. I think um, you can come to that Conclusion, I happen to disagree with it, but I respect it and I respect R.C. Sproul. He's an ama- was an amazing theologian But I disagree with him So that was kind of R.C. Sproul's uh, view on that one one other view is that It's still a sin to tell a lie to save a life But better to tell a lie than to let the life be taken Better to tell the lie and commit this relatively minor sin than to let murder take place. And again, I can see how you would come to that conclusion. I wouldn't happen to agree. So, my view, and I've stated this already, is that a lie is a lie in any situation. And that there's never a point where telling a lie is justified. And really quick, again, we're just going to try and get through this really quick because I realize that I'm going kind of long. Uh, Joshua 2, which is Rahab hiding the spies, I will not read it. And then Exodus 1:15 through 20 is the Israelite midwives. These are both examples that are used to say that there are times when a lie is acceptable. So I just want to talk about both passages really quick. God did not reward the lie per se. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, you see that God dealt well with the Israelite midwives because they saved the children. They didn't murder them as they had been commanded. So that's the first thing. God did not necessarily promote the lie. And then we see later in James, when talking about Rahab, She was justified by faith, and this faith was not alone. There were works along with it. The works did not justify her, but there were works, and they were that she hid the spies. Not that she lied about it. They were that she hid the spies. One other thing that I would like to bring up when talking about the Israelite midwives is that the lie they told was not to save anyone's lives but their own. They didn't go before Pharaoh and in order to save the young lives that had already been saved, tell a lie. They told the lie to save their own necks. And I think we can all agree that telling a lie to save your own life isn't commendable in any situation. So then, with that said, I want to ask three questions. The first, and these are going to help us in this discussion of, is it ever acceptable to tell a lie? So, the first. Is truth relative? Is there ever a time when 2 plus 2 does not equal 4? If you have any, any ounce of logic in you, you will say no, that's absurd. Truth is objective. 2 plus 2 always equals 4. Whether it's apples or oranges or pears or pencils. 2 plus 2 always equals 4. Truth is objective. It's not subjective. It's not relative. So, no. Second question, is our responsibility to tell the truth relative? Is there ever a time when we do not have to follow the ninth commandment of thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor? And that is where I think you cannot come up with a single biblical reason as for why that should be, why the answer should be yes to that question. I don't think that you can point to any circumstance in which lying was accepted and encouraged By God. Third and final question that I want to ask on this topic is, was Jesus ever put into a position in which he had the lie? Let me make make it a little more simple. Did Jesus ever lie? No. No, Jesus never lied. I think that's pretty pretty, uh, self-explanatory, pretty obvious for most of us. Jesus never told a lie. So then one more question that I want to answer, and this is just our final point of the episode. What is an acceptable solution to a Nazi at the door situation? And I promised that I would explain that uh, phrase. Basically, it's just referring to the time when Nazis were in power in Germany and people would be hiding Jews in order to save them from the Nazi uh, concentration camps. And basically, it just means if a Nazi comes to your door looking for Jews, can you tell a lie? Or what do you do in that situation? Excuse me. No, I don't think you should tell a lie. I don't think you should tell them, hey, the Jews are up behind the false wall in my bedroom. I I don't think you should say that either. I think this is where the extreme cases point that I was making earlier can come into play. Silence and avoiding direct answers. Should Rahab have said, hey, the spies are up on my roof? Should she have lied to the soldiers? No. And one other point on the Rahab thing is are you seriously going to tell me that a prostitute from a pagan nation and a pagan religion is really going to be your moral compass? But that's just a side note. Anyway, silence, I think, would be a great option here. Don't say anything. Let's be honest, they were Nazis. They probably would have searched the house no matter what you said. They went went where they wanted, did as they pleased. They probably would have searched the house no matter what you said. So it's not like a lie is going to do you anything anyway. So, silence. And then, again, avoiding direct answers. I think a great example in this case would just be, I mean, you can check. Come search the house. You're free to search the house. Not a lie. Not a lie. And then, I don't know, maybe another response would be asking a question. Because questions aren't true or false, it's just a question. So if you ask a question in response to a question, you haven't lied or told the truth, either one. You simply just ask a question. And there are cases where that could be taken to mean something, it could be taken to be a statement of what is true or false. So in a Nazi at the door situation, silence and avoiding the question, I would say, are two great options that we have that is not lying, per se. Again, not exactly commendable in everyday life, but it's not lying either, and I think it's acceptable in extreme cases, Nazi at the door situations. Again, I just want to make that very clear because this has such potential to be abused, I am not saying that we should engage in these options on a day-to-day basis. I don't think any of us can come up with a day-to-day basis or a day-to-day situation that we go through that could be considered extreme. Not most of us, if any of us, maybe the president and maybe some other very important people in positions of power, but for the most part, I don't think we can. I don't think we can. So this should by no means be used as an excuse to live out these situations, or to live out these options on a day-to-day basis. We shouldn't be living by this by any means. So, lying in extreme cases? I do not think we should be lying in extreme cases. I think that is... That would be a sin, and I think it is not commendable in the least. Thank you all so much for listening to The Junker George Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, subscribe, share this with friends and family. All of that would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to tune in next week as we start a five-episode series on the five solas of the Reformation. I will see you then. God bless.